There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Woodgundy. Greg, today we're going to be talking about stock picking. And our agenda for our listeners is we're going to go through some of the history of stock picking, talk about how to diversify a portfolio with stocks, and kind of see where our conversation takes us from there. Let's talk a little bit about the history of stock picking, Greg. Listen, I mean, I was just thinking about this, and when you get right down to it, back in the 1920s, 30s, stock picking was really the only option. If you were an investor, there was a whole group of stocks trading on the various stock exchanges. And at that time, there were no well-diversified mutual funds. There was no exchange-traded funds or index funds. And so basically, you were left with the requirement, essentially, to select some number of stocks to include in your portfolio from the number that traded at that time. So I guess when we talk about stock picking, well, what would be the purpose of stock picking? And ultimately, the purpose would be to identify companies to invest in that have the possibility of going up in value more than you might expect from the market as a whole. And there's a couple of different approaches to stock picking, but we're going to focus primarily in this episode on what's known as fundamental analysis. So with fundamental analysis, the objective is to determine a company's intrinsic value and then compare that to the current trading price of that particular stock. So if the intrinsic value is higher than the current trading price, you would believe the company was mispriced and undervalued and you would buy that company's shares. But Greg, what do you mean by intrinsic value for our listeners? Well, doing fundamental analysis requires a careful examination of the company's financial information, such as their balance sheet, their income statements, and so on. And it might also look at a variety of external economic factors, perhaps, outlook for the industry, maybe analysis of the company's competitors. But ultimately, it comes down to taking a look, seeing what the company would be worth on an intrinsic basis with all of the known information you could gather about it and compare it to the stock price. And basically what you're doing there is you're looking for mispricings in the market. So you're trying to figure out, does the market have it wrong? Is this stock got a lot of better potential than its current trading price would suggest? And that's where the intrinsic value analysis comes in. So conversely, if you're looking at a do the analysis and the intrinsic value of a company is lower than the current trading price of the shares, then those shares should be sold because you would believe that the market has it wrong and this company is actually overvalued. So the key word of that that I hear is value. You're talking about things that are underpriced or overpriced. That's correct. And in fact, the whole concept of stock picking is based on mispricing in the market. And so as we've talked about, and we've mentioned on a couple of our previous podcasts of Benjamin Graham, he's known as the father of value investing, and he literally wrote the book on fundamental analysis back in 1934, surprisingly entitled Security Analysis. 
And he later wrote a follow-up book, The Intelligent Investor, in 1948. And since these books were published, there's, of course, been numerous updates of those particular books. But Benjamin Graham was known as the father of value investing. And in fact, many of his former students went on to very illustrious careers in the investment world, including people like Sir John Templeton and most notably Warren Buffett. And they basically carried on Benjamin Graham's style of security analysis and finding value or underpriced stocks. So here we are. How have things evolved over the last 86, almost 90 years since his first book was published? So where we stand now is that basically there are tens of thousands of incredibly well-trained analysts and CFAs and MBAs and lots of individuals around the world who are doing a similar type of analysis of companies and their intrinsic value. And not only that, computer programs have been written to utilize the various techniques of fundamental analysis. And I'm sure there's information available today on essentially every stock that trades. So what's interesting is more and more people have gotten into the business of security analysis all of the advantages or most of the advantages that you get from doing that kind of analysis has been basically priced away. What do you mean by that? So is that through like artificial intelligence or? Well, it could be artificial intelligence. It could be just the actual fact that there's a lot of very smart people out there conducting analysis on exactly the same companies and they have access to exactly the same information. And therefore it's possibly likely that they're going to come to the same conclusions and therefore, the potential advantage is gone. And in fact, it's quite interesting. There's a couple of speeches made by Benjamin Graham that I will reference here over the course of this podcast, where he looks back at the way he used to do analysis and has different views on it. So the first one I want to mention is there was a speech that he made in 1963. And the title of that speech he gave was Security in an Insecure World. And in here, I'm just going to quote from his speech. He says, Similarly, take the case where an individual stock is favored by one of my own fraternity of security analysis because he is optimistic about its future earnings and general prospects. To the extent that investors generally agree this company has good future prospects to that extent, its prospects are also likely to be fully reflected and perhaps over-reflected in the market price. So what he's saying, again, basically, is when everyone's doing the same analysis or if they're coming to the same conclusions, then the price of that security will already be adjusted to reflect that favorable outlook, which actually sounds a lot like the efficient market hypothesis that was published by Eugene Fama as his doctoral dissertation back in the mid-60s. And we will be talking about that in future episodes as well. Well, you've got the father of value leading to the work of the father of modern finance. Exactly. And I think that just speaks a little bit to how things have evolved since Benjamin Graham first published his first book. And in the same speech back in 1963, he also identified that it's impossible for investors as a whole, and therefore the average investor, to do better than the general market. And that's something that we're going to talk about a little further on in this episode. Now, there is the opportunity, though, to do better than the market. And If I went through the top returning stock picks for 2019, well, actually, let me just say this. I found the top performing stock picks for 
for 2019, not the stock picks, but the stock returns themselves. I'm not familiar with any of these names. Have you ever heard of Axum Therapeutics? Never. That is the top performing stock in the US stock market. It gained almost 3,600% in one year. Pretty good return for something that nobody's ever heard of. Exactly. Now, it slightly outdid another company called Constellation Pharma, which went from $4 a share to $47 a share, or more than 1,000% in return. These are names that aren't familiar to me. And I say that because I just haven't heard of them. It's interesting because if you talk to, there may well be some investment managers or individual investors that do hold these stocks. Obviously there are. Somebody had to. But for the vast majority of people I know, including our coworkers here in the industry, as well as our clients, these are names that I've never heard of. Now, every year, usually towards the end of the calendar year, we get all of the top stock picks for the next calendar year. And these are lists that are put out by research companies, financial publications. You'll see them in publications from Motley Fool, Seeking Alpha, Barron's, Money Magazine, and even within our own company, we have our forecasted top picks for the year. So I looked at one specific one. It was put out by Seeking Alpha and it referenced three dividend stocks to own for 2020. The three companies they talked about were Andrew Peller, Royal Bank, and Fortis. So when I compared the actual return to date of these three stocks versus just investing in the market to what you just pointed out, Greg, of course, these three particular stocks have underperformed the market by almost 8% year to date as of this publication. Now, interestingly enough, In this short list of three stocks to own, they really focused on dividends, but the dividend yield between the three stocks and the dividend yield of the market, in this case, were actually almost identical. So what would be the point of investing into a concentrated three positions focused on dividends? Any suggestions to that, Greg? I can't imagine. I can't imagine either. So now I've told this story in past presentations, but I have a son. His name's Kalen. You've met him. I have. When Kalen was eight years old, He was in her office, and just for fun, I printed out the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the TSX 60. I gave him a highlighter, and I asked him to pick 10 names from each stock. I didn't give him any reason to pick a name or to exclude a name. I just let him have at it, and he did that. And I took that information, and we created what we call the CMG Kalen Index. I don't know if you recall going through that exercise. And we benchmarked it against our companies, not our current companies, but our former companies, North American Core Portfolio. And basically just looked at the names that Kalen chose versus the names that the analyst chose. There was some overlap. There were three stocks that both had chosen, those being Suncor, TC Energy, Home Depot. But Kalen really seemed to gravitate towards names that he knew, that he was familiar with. So in his portfolio, he chose names like Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Nike, Disney, Walmart. But he also had some surprises like Agrium which is now Nutrien, Agnico Eagle Mines, and even Enterplus. Now, I look again at the experience level. Kalen was eight. I don't know what grade he would have been. How old? What grade are you in? Four? Three? Three, four? four? I should know this, but (laughs) (laughs) anyways, we look at the experience level. He was being benchmarked against a team of analysts that have, as you mentioned, CFAs, MBAs, professional engineering designations, a whole laundry list of designations. They had a couple similar picks, but not very many. So over the last 10-year period, actually, it's not quite 10 years because he's only 16 now, 
So let's look at the five-year period. Kaylin's index has returned 12.25% per year versus the analyst in mark of 3.46% per year. It's quite a difference. It's a huge difference. And in every given time period that I looked at, and the data is coming out of Morningstar. It's not like I've constructed the data. All I did was take his portfolio and benchmark it against their portfolio. Now, I have to keep in mind though, I have not adjusted any of the positions. We just put this as a static portfolio. So some could argue, well, maybe the analyst would have made some changes over the last eight years or something. But the point of it being is that here's a kid who was eight years old, no experience. His fee for doing this is a $30 a month allowance versus the analyst fee of what do analysts make? Lots of money. Anyways, it sort of leads us into the evolution of stock picking, I suppose. As I mentioned earlier, I mean, at the time that Benjamin Graham wrote his book on security analysis, he was really the first one to apply some very fundamental and rigorous analysis of companies' balance sheets, income statements, and so on. And I think that kind of moved the whole industry away from what might have been a gut feeling that they may have used to pick stocks based on, oh, I like the company, or I think they're good, or what we always used to hear, they've got experienced management. And a clean balance sheet. And a clean balance sheet. And so I think the evolution was a natural one for him. And then over time, though, as his style of security analysis became more common and a whole range of new ideas came out and new products as well. So there was a very limited availability of products to help investors invest well in the market. And so most people started with individual securities. And it was only later, I guess, in the 50s, probably, where the first mutual funds started appearing. And then again, not until the 70s or later, I believe it was early 90s, when ETFs, a sort of index funds, first surfaced. And so there has been quite an evolution in the whole area. But again, even now, with the plethora of mutual funds available, stocks are still being picked. And the idea is that in, in every actively managed mutual fund, there's a, a fund manager supported by teams of analysts doing this kind of security analysis on hundreds of stocks and then trying to boil it down to the number that should be in their portfolios. Now, at least in a mutual fund, you might end up with 60 or 70 or 80 stock picks within that fund, but it still comes down to that those stocks had to be picked. They didn't pick themselves. So somebody's selecting them and they're trying to beat a benchmark. That's their job. Absolutely. And what we hear about in the last few years, a lot of people talk about hedge funds. And this fellow you referenced earlier, Warren Buffett, took a million dollar bet back in January of 2008 against a hedge fund manager named Ted, is it Sides? I think it's Sides. Sure. Anyways, what Mr. Buffett said was he bet the performance of the S&P 500 against five hedge funds that Sides had the ability to select as an alternative. And they bet a million dollars on it with the proceeds going to a charity. So the results aren't shocking. Sides conceded defeat in 2017. At that point, hedge funds that he had selected for the portfolio had returned 22%, whereas the S&P 500 index had returned over 85%. So I'm not really sure what that tells us other than even the experts have a hard time at it. For sure. So that leads us into this idea of what we talked about in our last podcast, a get rich versus lose everything portfolio. Now you can absolutely get rich from having 
a concentrated portfolio of a few stocks and you can hit it out of the park. And if you're right, you're right. But if you're wrong, the outcome is much different. Well, that's for sure. I'm just going to talk a little bit more about some of those risks of stock picking. And what you just mentioned is obviously a key one. And that is that when you pick an individual stock, it could be conceivably the best stock in the world, the worst stock in the world, it doesn't matter. There's really two potential outcomes at the extremes. One is that you get rich. The stock rises infinitely high over time and that one pick has been wildly successful for you and you get rich beyond your wildest expectations. So this is Axum Therapeutics you're talking about. That exactly. went up 3,600%. That's right. And then the other option is that you could lose everything. I mean, the stock that you buy could experience some cataclysmic event that you couldn't have foreseen when you bought it and you lose everything. And so essentially the net result of your potential investment could be anywhere from zero to infinity. And those are the two extreme outcomes. And people obviously have then tried to deal with that by diversifying. And as we talked last time, I mean, diversifying, holding 10 stocks is certainly better than holding one, but it's not as good as holding a whole lot more. And what also happens is that the diversification doesn't really come out as planned. So for example, lots of investment firms publish their lists of recommended holdings. And it's pretty easy and straightforward to go down through all of the analysts' recommendations. And there might be two or 300 that a firm or an organization like ours would identify as being things that should be bought, whether they're considered a moderate buy or a strong buy. Those are all buy recommendations. But what people do, and I think it's just human nature, is they try to cherry pick then and say, okay, well, I'm only going to pick the top 10, the ones that the analysts say have the highest potential return. And as a result, you end up with where you started with a list of two or 300 names, you come down to 10, and then you, of course, end up with a highly concentrated portfolio. And it's interesting, back in 1998, when I was working at a different firm, we had a quantitative analyst by the name of Peter Gibson, and he published a very interesting paper The title of the paper was Torpedo Stocks, Market Declines, and the Time Cost of Being Wrong. And basically, the thesis of the paper was that when you express opportunity cost of being wrong in terms of time, rather than the amount of underperformance, let's say, it really identifies the potential impact on your total portfolio and the growth of wealth over time. So for many of our clients, we do financial planning. We should do it, obviously, for all clients, and I believe every investor should have a financial plan. But in order to achieve the financial goals, you really depend on the power of compounding returns, essentially indefinitely into the future. And so we all know that when we make estimations of, well, we're estimating a 5 or an 8% return, usually we go lower, we assume that we earn that return every year and that return compounds over time. And so what Peter Gibson did is, He looked at the impact of torpedo stocks or stocks that don't perform as expected and what their impact would be on a concentrated portfolio. So these are stocks that go to zero. Well, they don't even have to go to zero, but they just have to underperform dramatically. And to give you an idea for any of our listeners who were around and investing in 1998, what Peter did was come up with a 10-stock portfolio. And he said, well, what would be the odds? What if somebody suffered some declines from some individual stocks. And these are names that some people may not be familiar with anymore, but as you say, anyone who was investing back then would be. 
Moore Corporation, which was at one time the largest publisher of business forms. Wait, so business forms aren't getting published anymore? (laughs) Well, not quite to the same extent that they were. An interesting story here, just not to get us too far off topic, but I started in 1996 with Scotia McLeod. And at that time, there was an article that published, what is our single best stock idea for the year, 1996? The stock, Moore Corporation. Well, I hope that Scotia or somebody also said to invest in Axum Therapeutics last year then. I hope so. (laughs) Anyway, back to the story. So what Peter Gibson looked at a portfolio of 10 stocks, but unfortunately that portfolio held shares of Moore Corporation, Inco, the commodities company, and Newbridge Networks, which is also a name from the past. And so when you look at that portfolio, that portfolio would have fallen 10%, even if the remaining stocks, the seven stocks that weren't those three, earned 8% for the year. So we've now got a portfolio that was down 10%, in a year when the Toronto Stock Exchange was up 13%. So those three positions underperformed. The other seven performed at average market returns or better. And the overall return of the portfolio was negative 10%. That's correct. So now because of that underperformance, what he did was he said, well, given the fact that we're now that far behind, how many years would it take to catch up to the market portfolio? And In order to catch up, of course, you have to perform better than the market itself. So what he did is said, well, let's say that the market grows at 12% a year. Pretty high. And you've just lost 10% in that one year in 1997. Well, now you need to earn 15%, 3% better than the market for four years straight, just in order to catch up to where you would have been had you not suffered that underperformance. And so what he's highlighting here again is the whole issue of you can't afford to underperform dramatically in any one year because it's not the underperformance that matters. It's how long is it going to take you to catch up? And the analogy that I use based on Peter's work is, let's say in the case of a marathon runner, these marathon runners, they're very experienced. They've run thousands of marathons or thousands of miles training And their times, they know pretty much what their times are. Now, if let's say you're an average runner, and so you're in the middle of the pack, and let's say you stumble. Well, the time you lose by stumbling, you may never make back up because you can't run faster than you can run. And so that one mistake is basically going to have you at the back of the pack for the rest of the race. And that's the analogy we talk about here. So what we want to make sure is that we don't underperform for any significant period of time because it takes too long to catch back up to where we would have been. And so, obviously, as we've discussed previously, what this leads us into is, well, how do you avoid that? And the answer is you avoid it by diversifying the portfolio, by making sure that you have enough positions in the portfolio that one or two mistakes won't cause you to fall behind dramatically. And then, of course, as we've talked and will continue to talk in future episodes, There are other factors that affect stock returns that can actually help to actually beat the market. And everybody wants to beat the market. It's easy to get the market return. And to be honest, for many people, or for most of us, that would be a perfectly adequate return. I think the average fund return is the market less expenses. That's exactly right. So really, when we will talk in the future about there are ways to diversify 
beyond just adding more and more names into the portfolio. And that is by focusing on including factors of return that are associated with higher expected returns in the future. And we'll talk about that later. And one of the factors that isn't there, we often hear about the idea of investing in dividend paying stocks because you're getting paid to wait. So even if the market goes down in theory, you're still collecting a dividend waiting for it to come back up. We often call this the dividend myth, and we'll talk about that in a future podcast. But for today, look, I don't want to get too down on people that are trying to pick stocks because, look, we've all been there. It's just that the odds aren't in your favor. It's a zero-sum game. And we've often talked about how the fact that there has to be a winner for every loser and a loser for every winner, and both sides can't be right 100% of the time. And as you mentioned, Greg, the only way to combat that is to have a diversified portfolio, looking at your risk exposure through your asset allocation, and just linking all these items back to what's important to you that requires planning money and time. And hopefully you've taken some time to explore those things. Look, we only got a few minutes left here. I wanted to go through a couple of items of interest that I've been focused on. I've been struggling through a book, Greg. It is a very influential book in finance or finance, depending where you live. And it's The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. And this book is, no lie, 900 pages long. That's a lot to dig through. I've looked at that book. I have not yet read it. Well, I'm not really reading it. I'm reading (laughs) the first two sentences of every paragraph because the fact is that the information in the book is quite dated. It's things that you already would have known from studying just economics or things like that. But for whatever reason, it was on this list of books to read. So I've decided I'm going to read it. But the other thing I'm doing with my time is I've been watching The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls, Netflix series. Have you seen that one? I haven't, but I've heard very good things about it. You should watch it. Whether you like sports or don't like sports, whether you like basketball or don't, I'm not a basketball fan per se, but this is just an incredible documentary. Well, and I understand it's, as you say, it's around basketball, but it's not just a basketball story. That's right. It's a story of all. Speaking of which, look, we've had to add a long disclaimer to the end of our podcast to be compliant, and we'll just leave that with the listeners to do with what they will. But is there anything we want to close out the show with? No, I just want to say I hope everyone is getting through the time that we're currently living through. The lockdowns are starting to open up. Life is starting to return to normal. I wouldn't say it's anywhere near normal yet, but I think with restaurants starting to open up at half capacity, and I know I've had, and my family has had lots of appointments, like dental appointments, and everyone wants to get their hair cut. And I think this is an opportunity for everyone to try to, when you get out of your house and you start doing things that are more normal in your life, things can look a whole lot brighter. We always want to be careful, practice all of the social distancing and hand washing suggestions that are made for us. But I do think now is a great time to get out, enjoy spring, and try to make life seem more normal than it has been for the last few months. Right on. Let's cap it off there. Thanks for joining us today on the free lunch. And we hope to have you back next time when we'll be talking about the evolution of advice. Thanks for listening in. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Do subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners. Please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the free lunch podcast.
The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.